Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of uh, Camology, the Cambridge podcast. And uh, in episode 11, I'm talking to uh, Carla Kroku of Safety Rocks. I, I pronounced that right, didn't I? You did indeed. Well done, Daniel. First time lucky, of course, of course. Carla, so do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction into, your, into yourself and how you came to become uh, CEO of uh, Safety Rocks? Do you want to just give a bit, bit of background on yourself? Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Daniel. So my name is Carla Crokin. Um, I have spent over 20 years in the health and safety industry, both in the UK and abroad, on some really exciting big projects from power stations um, to being in South Africa to working for the Health Protection Agency. And I've worked in the training industry for quite a while. Um, and when it came to uh, thinking about owning a company and starting a company, I really wanted to focus on tailored training solutions. So about five years ago, I set up Safety Rocks Limited in order to be able to solve a problem. Because I think through this time that I've been in the business, I've realized that the problem with the industry is that it has a reputation for being really dull and really boring. And consequently, it it actually hinders commercial activity in a big way and as you've probably guessed already I'm definitely not boring and I am passionate that we embrace commercial development uh, development in any shape or form so fundamentally I believe it is all about influencing people um, and the way people think rather than telling them what they can and can't do so we're not going to be policemen here what we're focusing on is being influential and um, so what we're trying to do is educate by informing people and we believe in actually building and I believe really fundamentally that it's all about building long-term partnerships that give us a much deeper understanding of organizations the organization structure its actual culture the people so we get under the skin of finding out basically what training organization what organizations need in terms of training and we discuss their needs really even before discussing any quotes for training we try and find out how we can uh, remove the off the shelf off off the table and basically focus on um, trying to uh, give good solutions to to the training requirements so that was what I was trying to do I was trying to create a company that really rocked safety that's what it was all about so then so so you've You've previously worked for the Health and Safety Executive. That's is that... I work for the Health Protection Agency, which is basically called Public Health England now. So actually, they have been in the news a lot recently, haven't they? A tad, yeah, a tad. So, um, so, so you you mentioned previously that perhaps the the old style of service providing was rather boring. And did you did I, did I hear, did I hear you correctly? You were saying perhaps old providers of the industry is more acting more like teachers and telling you telling people what to do and what they can and can't do more prescriptive so saying to people that um that they can't do you know stopping people doing activities rather than trying to find solutions so health and safety is is not something about stopping people doing work it's actually more about trying to get people to actually do a job but just do it safely and so there are multiple ways of doing that and the, the best way of doing it is not by telling people what to do. So you can do that and you can't do that. But by trying to get people to want to do it for themselves. So motivating them to change their beliefs and their attitudes. And also trying to get them to understand the importance and relevance of the safety measures that are in place. And what that actually means to them personally. So how do you, so then how do you get, I mean, in your experience, how do you get people to be motivated to 
to to sort of you know to to put these structures in place because perhaps you come you come up against I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, you you come up against uh, perhaps a resistance in the early days when you're working with a client or you do and and depending on on the level as well so one of the things that i think is really important is about educating people so i think we've got a job to do we should be educating by informing we should be influencing by informing we should be doing all the things that we need to do to make sure people understand why they're being asked to do something so you can't just tell somebody to do something you must do that without giving them a reason to do it and people have different motivational requirements so what motivates us in life is unique to all of us and it's trying to find those things that motivate people and often the levels of education in organizations can vary greatly and, and people just don't know things. So if you give people information, they have the ability to be able to make an informed decision. So that's what I mean about by influencing, by informing. It is so fundamentally important that we educate our staff. Mm. Um, and in large companies, it can be quite tricky to do that because there isn't necessarily the mechanism that allows them to do large scale training for their staff on their own policies and procedures within the market. Whereas what we do is provide truly tailored solutions. So we work with the organization, we understand its culture, um, and then we write training specifically for them. Um, and that's where we're different. So, for example, there are loads of companies where you can get off the shelf training, but yeah. it's all about truly tailored solutions. So it fits with their requirements. What's their objective? What are they after? What mm. are they trying to achieve? And what all companies are trying to achieve mainly is a positive health and safety culture. These shared aims and these values and beliefs of the organization that pervade through it in order to make everybody believe that safety is a first priority and their health. And, and perhaps even more so now that's perhaps come to the fore where um, obviously with COVID-19, you know, the health and safety, specifically the health, you know, perhaps, you know, the physical health of, of their members of staff has come up to the fore. Would you, would you agree with that? So it's become more prevalent in people's minds, hasn't it? So the coronavirus situation has made things really much more prevalent. So um, in terms of figures in the UK, if we look um, every year, there are around 28 million working days that are lost. Um, if we look at the 2018, 2019 figures. So, so they're lost. So, so I can get a grasp on that. They're lost to health and safety issues. Yeah. And that, and that's physical health, mental health. Is that how, how are those numbers? Yeah. So what's really interesting is that the majority of those are to do with uh, the to do with health. So 23.5 million of those days lost, working days lost are primarily to do with health. The rest of them to do with, with safety. But if you look at that 28 million, but 23.5 million of those days are health related days off, not safety. Isn't that shocking? And that's even then. So I've been touting for a few years now to try and get people to understand that health should be on the top of the priority. So in the UK, we do a pretty good job when it comes to safety. For example, um, if you don't have a guard on a saw that you're working with, you know, you might cut your fingers off. We, we you know, it's, that's fairly obvious. But some of the nuances around health issues are far more difficult to grasp. Do we even want to face up to our own health issues? You know, when we look at it in the UK, um, the way we eat, the way we live now, the lack of exercise, the sedentary lifestyles that we lead, they are our own personal responsibility. Um, but organisations 
are making sometimes making people work in in jobs where actually their job are their job is actually fundamentally affecting their health so if yeah. you sit down all day 12 hours a day on a shift and you don't get up that has an impact on your health and employers do have a duty of care so for example if i think about it in terms of looking at the health and safety of our employees employers have to look at the health safety and welfare and have to look after that so far as reasonably practicable so they have to make sure that they look after their their employees and that is physical and protect them from physical and also psychological harm um, so when it comes to the kind of uh, duty of care employers do have to look after their employees health um, mm. as well as their safety and as well as their well you know making sure that they've got the welfare requirements that they actually need so it's quite it's quite complicated we do have personal responsibility but obviously if your work is affecting your health then your employers need to step in as well and help to control the level of risk so do you so that's an, that's an interesting point so do you think that that gets lost that people companies focus perhaps in their ignorance about people's safety but not their health you know they just give i don't know in a crude example they give people ppe but they don't or you know or they you know buy them safety trousers or whatever it may be but they perhaps they they don't they neglect their health I don't think they do it purposefully, employers. Yeah. It's just okay. that health, yeah, yeah, health health is far more complicated than safety. Safety is fairly straightforward. It's pretty much in your view. It's in your sight view, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, a PPE is definitely last resort on the hierarchy of control. It shouldn't be given out unless actually there's no other way of controlling risk. But with health, it's much more complicated. So there are so many things that are bundled into health. Your hearing, you know, your sight, your breathing, your mental health, you know, your weight, uh, you know, whether or not you've got any fundamental diseases. Um, you know, 50% of the adult population in the UK are on prescription drugs. In some shape or form they're on prescription you know medication yeah. you know, that that is a huge amount of people who have you know conditions that they need prescription medication or drugs for you know it it, it just shows you that it can be complicated and it's not just about work it's about their lives as well isn't it you're scaring the hell out of me here oh like, i hope 50, i'm not <laughs> no, 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 i didn't realize i mean I, I i mean i've always i've always been aware of the sort of prescription drug uh, drug epidemic in sort of America, and I've you know I've, se I've seen a few um, you know Netflix programs on it, but I didn't realise in England it was you know it was fifty percent on prescription drugs. Yeah, it's it's shockingly high, isn't it? And when you look at that, a it's costing the NHS fortunes, um, and some of those things we don't actually necessarily we have an opportunity. If, say for example, you have an opportunity, 70 percent of everything to do with your health and your lifestyle and your, your everything like that. You, in general, seventy percent of everything to do with your health is under your control. So we can blame genetics as much as we like. But actually, we have an opportunity to, in some cases, override our genetic predispositions by looking after ourselves. So not in all cases, far from it, but things like diabetes, for example, type 2 diabetes, it's not inevitable that we're all going to get type 2 diabetes. But if we get overweight, we don't exercise properly, then actually that becomes more of a factor. So you know we and then you end up taking all this medication and often i mean i see a, i see a lady um it was last year um and she um was taking medication for uh, high blood pressure which was then causing other issues such as um 
you know, reflux, acid reflux, and um, all sorts of other problems, like she was getting palpitations, you know, and that's a myriad of other factors that are being introduced just because of drugs, just because of prescription medication. And you, and you, and you see that with the companies you work for, that, that um, you know, perhaps a lot of their staff are, 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 are unhealthy? Do you, do, you, do you see that? Do you have to address that when you start to work with new clients? Yeah, so sometimes when we work with new clients, we look at how we can help them. So, and everybody's unique. So that's one thing. So when we look at how we fit solutions around um, individuals, it's actually not one size fits all. It's like diets. The diet industry in general, you know, the diet books and diet fads, they tend to focus on dragging you back in again, you know, putting you on short term diets that you pay, you buy a book for, and then you come off of it, and then you go, you bounce back. But actually, these are lifestyle changes, personal lifestyle changes. And there is no one size, size fits all at all. They're just genuinely not one size fits all. Mm. It is about working out what works for you. Do you see what I mean? It's like yeah, trying yeah. to trying to basically um, say like my body type is like this or. I, well, I paused because that reminded me of a previous podcast a few episodes ago where they had yeah. I had a lady from um, uh, a physiotherapist and she, and as you said about body types, she was talking about. Now let me get this right. Endomorph. Yeah, that's it. Ectomorphs. There you go. Yeah. So um, that's really important because it affects how your body stores things. So, for example, um, if you think about um, mesomorphs, um, they tend to be muscular, well-built, have a high metabolism, all these kind of different things. And so they find it easy to build muscle, um, whereas people who are endomorphs tend to be big with high percentage of body fat. They tend to be quite pear-shaped, you know, so they might struggle a bit more in certain areas. But you find the thing that fits you and I think we're going to see more types of uh, you know personal diets and genetic diets but actually we really don't really need any of those things if we just moderate our um, our own health and look after our own body and be mindful of what we're actually doing it doesn't mean that you have to like not do anything at all and not like eat the odd chocolate bar um, but if you're going to go home every night and drink like uh, 10 bottles of beer and then worry in about six months that you've got very high you've got a you know, you've got a, a food baby and, uh, you know, and uh, high visceral fat. Are you surprised? I'm not entirely sure. Lots of sugar, alcohol, you know, and you don't really do any exercise at all. It has an impact. And obviously, as we age, that impact just exacerbates if we don't do something about it. We, you know, 71% of all cancers are technically, or around 71% of all cancers are technically preventable via diet and lifestyle changes. So as you as you as you sort of mentioned about uh, you know coming home after after a day and then you know drinking a bottle of wine or you said mentioning drinking, how much does uh, sort of um, stress in the workplace? Do you get involved with that? Do you deal with that? And how? Um, yeah. So so I, I guess stress is part of, you know is a major part of. Um, health in the workplace is that is that something you come up against it's true so um, mental health and stress in the workplace is a, is a big issue so we see hundreds of thousands of new cases of stress every single year in the workplace caused or made worse by their work um, and um, the thing is with stress it's not just about your work it's also about your life you know your life as well you think about it you know 
you know, especially at the moment, people are under a huge amount of pressure. So if they've got four kids at home that they're trying to homeschool, uh, a cat, a dog, a budgie, you know, that kind of thing, they're all out there trying to do everything, you know, and um, it's really stressful. But also when they go back to work, you know, that the, the work pressures will be on them. There's going to be, you know, potentially a really deep recession. All of that puts people under huge amounts of pressure. And it's when that pressure becomes so much for people, they get they get stressed and chronic stress is incredibly toxic for the body it affects our sleep patterns it affects our metabolism it affects our bodily processes and it is really damaging for us um, but stress and our mood can be regulated by exercise and what we eat yeah yeah i would um i would vouch for that yeah, it's true. If you get out there and you get on your bike or you go for a run, you, you, you've probably experienced this. You know, you have a really kind of high pressure day at work and you go, right, I'm really tired, but I'm going to go for like a 20 mile run or I'm going to go and cycle for a bit, you know, um, and you come back and you go, yes, that's brilliant. I feel better. And you sleep better and all those kind of things. Yeah, I, had, I mean, I had that the other day, you know, there's, you know, in front of in front of the computer, doing Zoom calls, doing everything in front of a computer. And I'm just going stir crazy. So I got I got on my bike and yeah, cycled to Girton and then back. And I thought, yeah, I can I can just feel those endorphins or whatever happy chemical is uh you know, is but yeah, it clear it clears your head. It obviously, you know, if you get the gets your heart going, yeah, I mean it's 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 really powerful. So. It is. It is. And, you know, sitting down late at night. So, for example, if you're going to sit down late at night and you're going to eat late, that will affect your metabolism. Our bodies are really not designed to be eating late at night. Um, and so lots of people will work all day and then nine, ten o'clock at night decide that they're going to go and eat. But actually, that has a big impact on our weight. It also has a big impact on our sleep. Mm. Um, so if I was, I was trying to say to people that, you know, if you can restrict your eating to kind of before 7 p.m., it has a massive impact on your body's ability to be able to process stuff what's your what's your opinion on fasting because uh uh do, do you uh, what, do, what do they call it uh, they fast and then you, your body goes into ketosis is that am i am i murdering that phrase yeah no it's called ketosis um i um i have read a lot of information about um ketosis and um, i I think that it can, it's not advised in the sense that it wouldn't be one of those things that I would, I would go, yes, it's something that I would be kind of um, saying is a good idea. And the reason being is, is it often produces huge amounts of weight loss in such a short period of time that's unsustainable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I think that when we're talking about nutrition theory, uh, whilst ketosis does, you know, give people uh, the ability to be able to lose quite a lot of weight very quickly, uh, the effect on the bodily processes means that the body's not functioning how it normally would do. And therefore, it's likely that once you come off of that, you're likely to put on weight. And mm -hmm. the whole idea is not to diet, but to change the way you actually manage food and think about it. Mm -hmm. So I would prefer to see more people uh, focus on things like eating low on the food chain. So less, proce less processed food um, and eating small and often. Um, and focusing on a wide range of um, food so that you get adequate nutrition because some things have things in like copper and stuff like that you actually need that you if you have a very narrow field of food choices you're actually not getting those very important uh, micronutrients if you see what I mean so 
it's really important to have a really good variety but more lower down on the food chain I think from what I can see that, that the you know it, it is about just making conscious choices uh, rather than doing these kind of fatty I would call them kind of more fatty diets mm. than anything else yeah, but so they, they have, do produce yeah I said they produce a lot of revenue for the people that write the books <laughs> yeah so, so this is it and actually though there is so much scientific evidence out there there is pages and pages and pages of scientific evidence out there um if you wanted a way through it will show you how effective these things are in the long term um and the psychological it's great when people lose weight people love losing weight especially if they you know lose huge amounts of weight in a short period of time but everything has to be sustainable we all put on weight we all lose it we all we all bounce a little bit but it is the huge bounces that are the big problem i think um and um you know it is one of those things where some of these extreme diets they're just completely unnecessary i think that's the thing for them it's not it they're not necessary um one of the things i would say though is the small and often rule is actually quite a, a good tip so i can remember years ago um speaking to um somebody that i knew about eating and my, my parents had raised us on three day, three times a day we eat three times a day um and i can remember being at work having a blood sugar test at maybe 10 o'clock in the morning after eating my breakfast at 7 a.m my blood sugar was really low and I was like no I don't eat till lunchtime because I was brought up on three meals a day but actually it has a massive impact so if you um can eat five or six times a day in smaller meals rather than having these spikes where you see your blood sugar go up and down you're leveling out those you feel better so I eat five or six times a day and I probably eat no more than about that much food so two fistfuls of food every meal okay, yeah. and my blood sugar level doesn't go up and down um you know and i feel i don't feel like i'm gonna faint or i don't feel um hangry as we would call yeah. it as a combination of hang angry and uh, hungry yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, me and my wife definitely have those <laughs> hangry yeah that's exactly it so um in general it is all about just trying to be more balanced with reference to how you eat, but that kind of low down on the food chain. Um, preparing your own meals as well. And there's ways of doing it, batch cooking, as long as you don't go and eat all the leftovers before they're due, you know, to be eaten the following day. Like yeah. I'll go to the fridge and I'll go, well, where's that thing that was supposed to be for my lunch tomorrow? And it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's about preparing things. And it's also about eating things that you like. And learning to like things that are healthy. Yeah, I like chocolate biscuits. Hey, yeah. you can yeah. make your own like not chocolate biscuits by getting some uh, oats and some you know soya crispies and some yeah, really yeah. lovely dark chocolate. You know, make your own chocolate biscuits. So um, experimenting as well um, and finding things that you like um, and trying to avoid adding things like salt and extra sugar to things mm. which you don't actually need. So we had one chap, I think it's the beginning of last year, who came on one of the sessions and bless him, he was really tall. Uh, he didn't have like a, you know, like a, like a well-rounded face, but he did have a well-rounded belly. And he said, my wife feeds me. I don't have any control over any of the food that I eat. I don't have any control. I'm just, you know, subject. I, I, just, I just eat what I'm yeah. told to eat. <laughs> and uh, I, I love this. I think this is quite common. Um, and um, when we looked at his uh, pat lunch, um, it was basically sugar, 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 because it was all low fat. Yeah. 
Mm. And for some reason in our psychology, and maybe that's a, like a 90s thing, maybe it's like a 90s, noughties thing where everything had to be kind of low fat and people were focused on low fat. But actually some of that stuff was covered in sugar. You know, it's like the fat was replaced with sugar. You've got to taste something. And all our um, obsession with sweetness. So if we, this is an interesting one. For example, if we sweeten stuff, so if you add sweetener, you are making your body, uh, you're, you're telling your brain that sweet is good for, you know, you like it, you really like it. But if you get used to not adding sweetener, over time, your brain will get used to the fact that some things that didn't taste sweet before will now taste sweet. And it's the same thing for saltiness. You know, if you don't add salt, all of a sudden over time, your body will get used to the fact that you're not adding so much salt. And something that you know, previously didn't taste salty, like smoked salmon, might all of a sudden say taste really salty to you because your body has got really used to not having that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just training your brain. So um, I love food. I love cooking, you know, and I love eating. But I I literally, um, my food choices will be based on fundamentally, A, what I want to eat, but also what I think um, is going to be good for me. Mm. as we're machines aren't we after all we what you get what you put in you get out I guess so yeah I mean can we go back a few steps because yeah of course you're mentioned um uh in the introduction or your your own introduction we chatted before uh I pressed record about your time in South Africa so that's on so on face value that sounds a really exciting time so what 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 were you what were you getting up to over in South Africa professionally Okay, so um, my husband at the time had uh, been asked to go across to South Africa on a power station project to uh, be the emergency services manager um, and to set up a power station from the beginning. Um, And so he asked me, do you want to come to South Africa with me for a couple of years? Um, And so I said, yeah, let's go. You're going to say no. No, no way. Life is short, isn't it? You have to go. So um, we went over there and I had massive opportunity to work over there because South African culture is really quite different to ours in the UK. Um, In the sense that uh, it is... Health and safety culture or or culture in general, sorry. In every way, to be honest. Um, But in health and safety, particularly because their value of life is quite different to ours and their life expectancy is quite different. So on average in South Africa, the average life expectancy is about 42. Bloody hell. Yeah, it's quite different. to Another one of your stats that's making, is scaring the life out of me. Sorry. No, no, no. 42. Yeah, it's um, it is really different, and their value of life is quite different to ours. You know, we, let let's take the UK. When it comes to health and safety, we enforce. We have the health and safety executive. Uh, as a whole, we we're not. You know, we look after each other. We, we're as a nation, we're quite responsible, and we're quite we we follow rules. Well, the lockdown was a perfect example of that, isn't it? We're quite rule abiding, mm. um, and um, in South Africa, it's not really the same. And their value of life and the level of education amongst the general population is quite different, mm. um, and so they really don't get it. And also, they ve- live very a lot of the population live very hand to mouth, so they don't really look at chronic diseases as being a big issue. So, I did uh, a, a thesis on uh, silicon tuberculosis whilst I was over there um, looking at the relationship of the kind of the the, um, the type of culture that they have there and their instances of kind of diseases such as silicosis and and also infectious agents such as tuberculosis but it's really it's really very interesting to see the differences so 
as a country, it's incredibly different. It is incredibly beautiful, unbelievably beautiful. Yes. Um, and uh, an experience of a lifetime, to be honest. Um, amazing from a safety perspective. So um, I have managed to do loads of data collection. They do blastings. There's a lot of bedrock there, so they tend to do quite a lot of blasting. So when they're installing the turbines uh, and the um, the uh, kind of platform and the uh, under you know the undercarriage of the turbines, they tend to do a lot of blasting, um, and that produces lots of uh, crystalline silica quartz. And so we got to do measurements. Um, got to do some really exciting kind of things out there which you just wouldn't do from a both a personal point of view and a work safety point of view and and it gave me the opportunity to actually finish my uh, international diploma whilst I was out there so the British Council were out in South Africa and um, uh, supported the examination process for me as well which was really good wow sounds yeah. that sounds an amazing time yeah absolutely brilliant place if you have you ever been Daniel uh no no but but um I haven't been, but I uh, I can't find the book at the moment. But I would. What I wanted to show you was a book on um, South African plants and South African um, plants used in um, South African meadows. Let's just say that. So I've been reading that for the last couple of months. So uh, and I've been I've been seeing lots of little pretty, pretty pictures of South African meadows. And yes, yeah, so my head is pretty much in South Africa looking you know I would, I'd love to I love to see, well I like to see plants in the wild so I am I'm a bit jealous of you to be honest. <laughs> echinacea so echinacea is a South African plant which is used for medicinal purposes in the UK but very pretty and very pink. Yes yes um Hay fever, isn't it? You take it the hay fever? Is that, is For that colds and flu, usually ah. to help you with the symptoms of cold and flu. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So there's some really lovely, uh, it's amazing. And the trees, you know, the acacia trees and the flat tops and all that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. But, you know, from a safety point of view, it's really interesting to kind of, I did all the, the South African uh, safety qualifications because it's always useful to do whilst you're over in a in country. Um, and their view on safety is different to ours. But, you know, it is one of those things that the safety legislation is not that different from ours. It's just that culturally, fundamentally, the way they value life is very different. They, they live much, much more, you know, from each day. So, you know, it's about feeding their family each day rather than what we look at. We look at more long term things. I think we're planners. That's so interesting because I've got two brothers and my, uh, my elder brother spent a lot of time in South America and he used the exact same phrase, this, the, it's this hand to mouth and the, how they value life out there. It's a totally, totally different culture. And we are, we're planning, you know, we're planning for a retirement, planning for the, you know, for the, 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 the time of the sun at the end of our, you know, retirement. But yeah, you're, you're um, it's so interesting that they, they do value life in a different way. So do they have the equivalent of the health and safety executive in South Africa or what's yeah, they do but they do not enforce in the same way that we do they, their enforcement levels we you know we, we we undertake loads of enforcement in the UK and they just do not enforce in the same level in the same level and they have some interesting things in their occupational health and safety law and um, very much copied from the UK though. <laughs> um, I mean our health and safety law comes from the 1970s the predominant law the health and safety at work act and uh, theirs was kind of introduced much later um, but you know the, the framework around the legislation is pretty similar they have a, something called a 14-1 and a 14 
scheme too within the legislation which defines whose responsibility it is within organizations but you also have this um kind of uh, politics that goes on in south africa which will affect um the, the legislation as well so they do not enforce anywhere near you know the thing is, it, there's so many things that affect uh, enforcement. So, for example, the majority of the population, they don't have cars and stuff. So they travel on the back of pickup trucks and, you know, turn over the back of a pickup truck. And that's quite normal for them. So they're not going to raise safety concern in the same way that, you know, for example, we would in a factory in the UK. Um, so their enforcement le levels are quite uh, much lower. But, you know, like any developing country, um, they have challenges around um, culture and things like that anyway. And we, we, we are different in the, just in general, our culture is completely different in the UK. Um, but, you know, they do have an enforcement agency. Um, I worked with the National Occupational Safety Association in South Africa when I, I did qualifications uh, there, as in I did my qualifications at NOSA as well, you know, um, and it's interesting to talk to local um, kind of training partners in South Africa and also the, or the authorities to hear their perspective of things. But, you know, enforcement is, is something that we do really well in the UK, uh, even more so since the introduction of the fee for intervention regulations. So, um, you know, uh, commercial... That's nothing, with, that's nothing to do with football, is it? FIFA? The... No. <laughs> you know, we do, we do a good job. We do a good job of enforcing in the UK, I think. Um, uh, and, but it's the health part for us. I think we really... I think all nations really struggle. How do you deal with... How do you deal with collective health? Most people bury their heads in the sand about their own health. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's not going to happen to me. Yeah, it's never going to happen to me. You know, this kind of whole... Um, you know, until it happens, um, people just really take no notice, you know, oh, yeah, I've got a healthy diet. And when you listen to them, they, yeah, they're smoking 20 fags a day and, you know, uh, you know, never get out there, you know, and, and it, we do, people do bury their heads in the sand, don't they? It's very difficult to deal with collective health. Yeah, you don't want to look at yourself in the mirror, do you? You don't want to, uh, yeah, and it's that kind of reactionary way of dealing with it you know i've got a oh, oh it's come to a fall i've got a problem i must deal with it when it comes up and you've got to face it but yeah this is true this is true it is really i mean it becomes it, most of the time when we, people think about health it becomes unbelievable to us you know the, for some people they just think that they are going to live forever so it becomes unless it's actually specifically relevant to us how do you uh, think about kind of trying to direct human behavior i mean we 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 have to collectively believe that looking after our own health is important and we also need companies to to understand that looking after their staff health is health is is important too because actually if their staff are unhealthy they're usually less productive you know, yeah. if they've got problems with poor mental health or poor physical health, they're usually less productive. And if you can get more production out of people, surely companies will be interested in that. So do you work with, um, you must, it sounds like you must work with sort of the HR department in these companies. So you, you get to, you, you get to the sort of the decision makers that are dealing with HR. Is that, have I understood correctly? 
Yeah, so usually HR and health and safety professionals within organisations uh, tend to work hand in hand. So back when I was a health and safety manager, I've had quite a varied career and, and you know, worked for different organisations. Um, you know, you used to work hand in hand with a HR department um, and some things around mental health, often HR departments lead on um, and other things around health, health and safety lead on. So things like uh, occupational noise and um, things like dealing with dust, tend to be tend to fall under the remit of um, health um, health and safety professionals um, mm. whereas HR tend to get more involved with some of the um, stuff to do with mental health but not always it's always you know depends on what organization it is often it's a mixture of the two departments who tend to do tend to, who tend to kind of lead on these things and then just so I just so I understand so you're you're, you're more focused uh, more on the the health side or do you do you do you deal with both the, the the safety side and the health or are you more focused or are you more focused on the health we do both so um i obviously started up safety rocks so safety rocks was the first kind of company that i created and then under the banner of safety rocks i created different brands so um we have um health rocks which deals with majority of things like nutrition uh, things like injury prevention incredibly important in businesses so uh, lots of companies do things like manual handling but injury for prevention is really important more so than you you know looking up to trying to deal with things in a static way um, the other thing about is weight management so again there are lots of um, kind of fatty diets out there and quick fixes and cabbage soup diets and all sorts of stuff but actually weight management is a long-term process um, and it's trying to teach people the skills to manage their own weight uh, individually so what are the things that we actually need what are the things that we need to function you know people most people don't even know how many calories they need to eat in a day just to breathe so things like their basal metabolic rate is really important uh, tips on how to increase their metabolism um, and uh, you know looking at their sleep patterns because sleep affects your metabolism also affects your weight um, so a whole range of different things around that so there's loads of things we can teach people so we do food planning for people uh, weight management um, exercise programs um, and we tend to go in and do like days for people where we put them on a tinnitus machine you know the one where you you stand there and you get your how much fat you've got and what's visceral fat and what you oh, yeah you hold on to something is that what you were doing or? yeah you can hold on to something and you put your feet on a pad and it fires things it tells you what's you know what's going on inside you know okay. it might say you know so one somebody <laughs> tells you your metabolic age so there's one lady who got and she was 44 and it came out at 72 she was not impressed <laughs> Okay. I was like, wow. Okay, so um, metabolism is really important. Um, and as we age, it sometimes can get a bit sluggish, you know, menopause for women, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so it's finding ways of uh, trying to boost your metabolism and make sure it's working effectively. Um, and, um, you know, how much muscle you've got on your body. It'll tell you all sorts of stuff. It's fascinating. Mm. Um, and uh, it gives people an indication of their level of visceral fat. That's the dangerous white sticky stuff that's around your internal organs in your midriff. Mm. Um, precursor, really, um, in terms of looking at, a long-term uh, internal inflammatory response um, tells people whether or not they're obese um, sometimes they don't want to know but maybe they might be um, and um, then we can look at their body composite measurements so if people are holding lots of fat around their abdomen that's you know, you know usually a bad sign so sometimes people are larger because they're structurally more muscly um, or you know you, you see people that come out as uh, having a high BMI but actually structurally they are muscly 
Um, and when you look at how much muscle they've got in the body, sometimes their BMI doesn't really reflect the fact that they might have a, quite a trim abdominal area. Um, so uh, if we look at the, uh, the kind of uh, ratios between ab abdominal area and the rest of the body. It's fascinating, isn't yeah, it? I'm blown away by this. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. There's so many things that the thing is a lot of nutrition, a lot of nutrition theory and all, all of it. Your body is a fascinating thing. It genuinely is. It literally, you know, it can repair itself. You know, if you if you look after yourself, you can repair stuff. You know, you're never going to deal with traumatic injury. You know, if you you're never going to be able to like miraculously repair trauma. But, you know, you can ultimately take care of yourself and reverse damage. And, uh, you know, not, not in every single case, but, you know, your food, your, um, your lifestyle in general, it's all interlinked. You know, if you want energy. So some people look at people and go, oh, oh my God, how old are you? You know, how, you know, how old are people? How, how have you got so much energy? Well, what you eat, how you sleep, how much exercise you do has an impact on that. Mm. Um, also your love of life. So remember that actually we have to like what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's... that's important, isn't it? Well, but, yeah, but how many? But how many people? Yeah, but how many people d do a job because I don't know they've uh, forced into it by pushy yeah. parents, or they were I don't know, or they took a job and pays well and pays the bills and. They're not really happy, but it pays the bills. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's all interlinked. You know, the health of our mind and our body is interlinked. Mm. So it is really, what you, what you say is right. How many people do do jobs? I try to say to people that if you find something, we spend so much time at work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We, we just genuinely do. If you find something that you love doing, you are going, you know, even if it doesn't pay so much, if you have a, if you have a more balanced life, it definitely, and you're happier and more, and you feel more content. That's more important than anything else. Because if you're doing a job every day that you hate genuinely at some point, it's going to catch up on you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so nice to see how passionate you are about health and safety. I mean, it's, uh, I know, but it's, again, I mean, it's, you've probably heard this a thousand times, but when somebody's, you know, the classic thing, and you touched on it earlier, people talk about health and safety. It's like, oh my God, time to slip my wrists. You know, it's not, it's not the most exciting, you know, it can be perceived as not the most exciting sort of uh, subject to talk about, but you, you are, it's the way you talk about it in this sort of holistic way, um, and, and not sort of compartmentalizing it all. So it's just health. It's just safety. It's it's all combined, isn't it? It's it is. I mean, cut me in half. It says safety through the middle, like literally like a rock. You know, it says it says health and safety. When did, and, when did that all start then? Because I mean, it, was it something that's always you know you've always sort of wanted to pursue a career in it, or is it? Uh... I wanted to be a doctor. So. Um, uh, when I was younger, uh, I applied for university and uh, went to my interview and everything. And then uh, literally boyfriend, car, house, uh, left home. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. Um, and I can remember I took a job working for an organization called Zell Vega Analytics, which is a gas detection organization that deals with safety. Okay. Really great. Loved the team there. Based at, they were used to be based at Bishop Stortford and in Poole and loved those, those, loved those guys. Um, and um, they did everything to do with confined spaces and all that kind of thing. And absolutely just loved it because it's science based, isn't it? So you, you, if you got, if you like, if you have a passion for, for that kind of thing, you just, 
you just get into it. Um, and one of the things about um, health and safety is you get to be the jack of all trades. So you get to uh, do a bit of biology, physiology, you tend to, you know, and, and end up, you know, working. So now, you know, having worked for Zelvega Analytics, um, everything to do with gas detection theory, um, everything to do with, you know, flammability ranges, mm. you know, it's just a bit of everything. So you become a chemist, a biologist, you know, uh, and, and that's it, it's a variety. So if one of the things I'd say to people, we, I recently did a blog for the examining body on careers. And I work as a careers network advisor for some of the schools. Um, um, and um, one of the things I think is fascinating is to try and encourage more people to go into the profession. Um, there are a lot of people who use it as a second career, but actually health and safety is a first choice career. Um, it is basically open to everybody. You can, you can, you can now get a degree. When I did my safety qualifications, you really couldn't get a degree, as in a Bachelor of Science in, in occupational health and safety. You could get a process safety degree, but that's very different from yeah. occupational health and safety. You always had to go the kind of um, level six route via vocational qualifications. Mm. Um, but now you can go to university and study occupational health and safety as a degree. Um, which means that that is a first choice career for people and it is the variety it is genuinely the fact so I mean I like about I liked about with Nebosh saying you know one day it's high vis the next day it's high heels and it's true what's Nebosh I mean the national examining body for occupational safety and health ah. yeah so uh, yeah we're a gold provider for them so we provide we're a gold learning partner for them excellent so um so a couple of things you mentioned what so when my people so you people look look at health and uh, health and safety as a second career is that is that do they, do, they, do they hear correctly yeah so usually and we're trying to encourage people to choose it as a first choice career so often when people uh leave the military for example say for example you've had a long service career in the military uh you've done your full service um you come out you're looking for something to do typically it might be facilities management or occupational health and safety um after a very long career in 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 one of the in, in the services um and that's a second choice career but but what what I think I'm trying to encourage within uh, the, the organisations um, and also in the way people think about safety is that it is a first choice career. Um, it, it is something you can do from 18. It isn't something that you need to do from 40. Hmm. Um, and um, lots of people end up going into safety later. So when you speak to a lot of safety professionals, you find that that isn't the first thing they ever did. Um, whereas actually... Um, it can be and it's a very rewarding career so I try to work now with people and, and try and speak to people who are kind of wanting to bring passion and enthusiasm, enthusiasm into the subject but also energy so if you're training people and uh, if you're trying to get people to do something if you stand there and you go yeah today we're going to do some health and safety training that's not going to engage people yeah. you need people to be on your side you need people to understand where you're coming from um, and to build rapport and for that you need to show that what you're doing is you're passionate about mm. um and that's why um the energy and enthusiasm is really important so if you if it's a first choice career for people it is it is you know it, if we encourage it to be a first choice career for people that can only be a good thing and it is a brilliant i've had a fantastic career in health and safety because i suppose you're meeting you're meeting people uh, new people every day so it's a diversity 
of the the, the actual work you're doing. The you're meeting. I don't. You meet. You're working with different groups every day, or is it the this is true and different companies so and different um industries as well so we literally work and I, I literally one day i might be working with whirlpool corporation as i said to you um and then the next day i might be working uh with smith and nephew and um, pharmaceuticals and healthcare companies or i may be working with uh, lockheed martin uh, who who do kind of military engineering so there's a whole variety in that in terms of it and risk is risk so it doesn't matter, necessarily matter what industry you're working in um, but you, you're, you've got the huge variety in those kind of scenarios there's a huge variety in the work that you're doing and the people that you're meeting mm. um, and uh, I think that's what kind of keeps me going I, I, it's, a, it's all about kind of making it's all about the people that you end up meeting and trying to protect them so I think people should go home with all their bits and their mental sanity that's the idea obviously they've got to come to work with them in the first place <laughs> <laughs> but i love it i just love it well that's the thing you, you come across as very much like a people person you know you are just uh well you're coming across coming across very well today but i can imagine you like i say being in front of a group of people being passionate engaging people and uh again i've sat through health and safety first aid courses and again i know perhaps it's perhaps not at your level but you know you sit through first aid courses and it's it's not the most it's not the most engaging and uh and you know you're not oh you know you're not open to learning or open open to taking on new ideas you know and i think uh um i, I could just imagine you're in front of a group of uh group of people being passionate getting people to get up and you know getting getting more engaged with the subject matter yeah i mean so many things you can do you can it's about trying to find what people find important so in people's lives if they don't engage with it if they can't if they can't find any motivation for it they don't find it important it doesn't have any value to them they're not gonna they're gonna switch off and if you've got people in the room that's switching off as a as a tutor that is the last thing you want i can't imagine what it would feel like to you know to start to see like people nodding off in the, the room that you're at you know <laughs> um that's just not what that's not what it's about i can't that must be so soul destroying to to be a tutor and actually start to see people nodding off in the room genuinely mm. um there are so many parts to it we can find the thing that people find interesting and i always say to people if they take one thing just one thing from the room uh, on that day that they find interesting or is useful to them when they go back into the workplace then i would have done my job and we have such a good team of tutors who work, you know, with the organization. Um, and um, it's all about making sure that the message gets across. So the organization has objectives, trying to get the uh, organizational objectives, uh, you know, across to the learners. You know, sometimes you'll walk into a room. I train people at all levels from grassroots all the way up to senior managers, you know, and directors of organizations. But, you know, in essence, what you're always trying to do is you're trying to get the message across in a way that people can relate to. So there's no no point in me going into a room with people who and and using language that they can't relate to, um, because if I use um, you know some like language that somebody somebody can't relate to in a training session, they're going to completely switch off. This person's not on my level. Uh, this person's not you know on my wavelength. And so the building of the rapport is fundamental. I think you know. Um, some of the things and some of the places I've trained are hilarious. <laughs> Just thinking about some of the places I've trained. We did a um, 
we did a training session um, and um, it was uh, in um, in Tottenham in London and it was a live that um, it was an open sewer they were repairing an open sewer and we did a a live hazard spotting exercise on an open sewer on Tottenham High Road um, oh, that's, that, that sounds so super glamorous so that's what I mean. One day high vis, the next day high heels. But who knows? <laughs> you just imagine you're all in sort of high vis, watching uh, watching stuff stuff go by, just sort of. Like, oh yeah. goodness me! <laughs> so one of the guys is there, like drinking uh, water, eating his sandwich whilst <laughs> the series opens. Like, yeah, okay, <laughs> don't think. You know, nowadays, what's really funny with the coronavirus, that's the situation that's occurred, is all of a sudden people are now aware of. Um, you know, microorganisms, they're aware of pathogens, um, and, you know, viruses, bacteria, people are like, whoa, and, and beforehand, people would never have thought that things, th these things existed, you know, it's like people were ignoring the fact that these things exist. Mm -hmm. Now, if you mention coronavirus, people are like, ah, but actually, there's hepatitis, there's, there's more viruses than there are stars. So, you know, it, it's not, it's nothing new. Um, it's just that this particular virus um, is quite contagious. Well, it's very transmittable and that's and they actually and that's the issue that people have and all of a sudden people's hygiene levels and the way they think about transmitting infection has substantially changed also their health so I don't know whether or not you've seen this Daniel but like literally I've seen more people I, I cycled last night I see more people out on their bikes more people running um, all out with their children than ever before yeah yes 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 uh Funny you should say that tomorrow um, I'm interviewing a lady from CamCycle, a charity, non-for-profit company that uh, is there to promote uh, cycling in Cambridge and in the wider community. So, um, yeah, to that point, I think it's a great opportunity now that, you know, we, uh, you know, people can get out, you know, get out with their family, get out on their bikes. This is a, this is a, it is a once in a lifetime, isn't it, to get that kind of not culture change, but uh, for people to just be more active, get outside. Because I've been doing, obviously, like you say, I've been doing it a lot more. But you would hope, you know, as the lockdown eases and we get back to some sort of you know, new normal, that um, yeah, people keep it up and they cycle more, they exercise more. I think all of these things there there is hope for uh, change you know mm. we do have um we're not we're not as bad as some of the, well we're not as bad as America in terms of the level of obesity and and people who are overweight but there is a, a substantial proportion of the population in the UK that is overweight and obese um, you're not, and you're not going to come out of another scary figure are you <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> There's quite a few. I was going to do what? Can I do percentages at you? Let's see what. I'm <laughs> no, <laughs> just do like loads of percentages. So um, I've got some really scary figures for you, actually. So um, you know we we're talking about coronavirus. Um, so globally, this morning I checked, there are about three hundred thousand, three hundred thirty thousand people this year in 2020 that have died from COVID-19 disease, as in confirmed yeah. cases. But actually, globally this year. 3.6 million people have died from coronary heart disease. So 3.6 million people have died from coronary heart disease this year yeah. already. And if we look at other things, and that's the biggest killer that we tend to find globally, 2.6 million people have died from stroke. Bloody hell. 
and that's this year in 2020 so you know like people are really fearful of coronavirus at the moment and i totally get it i can understand the news has been filled with death figures you know uh, you know mortality you know everybody's going to die stay at home you know that kind of thing i, t I, t I so i totally get it um, and there's a, a social responsibility aspect to all of this as well you know we have over 66 million people in the uk at the start of the pandemic situation that we were in in March, we had around 127,000 beds in the UK in terms of the NHS. So if you, if you kind of look at that and you look at those figures, 66 million people, 127,000 beds in the NHS, there was no way that everybody, if everybody gets sick at the same time that we were going to be able to cope. But actually, the level of um, serious people who have serious complications from the coronavirus, in, in this case, uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the, the COVID-19 disease would be uh, relatively low. So the, the level, number of people who have serious complications from this virus will be quite low. Um, when we look at things like you know, that many numbers of, you know, like 3.6 million people dying from coronary heart disease, that in itself is a shocking figure. Mm. I mean, that is, that's globally this year across the world compared to 330,000 from coronavirus, this particular strain of coronavirus. So um, we have a job to do. So actually, it's lovely to see people taking more care of their health because it is a personal responsibility. It's not for the government or the NHS to take responsibility for our health. To a certain degree, organisations need to help people maintain their health um, and not put them into jobs that are going to damage their health um, as part of that job itself so they have a duty to look after their physical and psychological health but we also have a duty to do that as well it's it, you know before it gets to the you know having to staple your stomach and gastric band kind of scenario you know there are always going to be examples where people genuinely have illnesses which um, cause them to put on weight and we know that but for the majority of people, it's actually um, the way we live nowadays that actually causes the issues with weight and uh, the, the nation's health. Yeah, do you scary figures. You love my scary figures. I am the queen of statistics. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we come across as, a, as somebody who likes numbers. So, uh, well, so I feel I feel that that. If you haven't scared the life out of everybody listening. Um... <laughs> well, this is an interesting thing about health. When we look at the numbers of days off, you know, I said to you about the 23 point million working days lost from work, from ill health. Since 2010, basically that number has been broadly flat. So we are clearly not getting any better with health. Yeah. Especially in the workplace. Um, we're seeing more cases of people coming through with anxiety and stress. Now, we know that that has some impact because we've, uh, from people being made more aware, so people doing mental health first aid training, more managers being aware of spotting uh, issues with staff when they get stressed. But it's not just about mental health. It's about physical health. And never has that been more pertinent than now. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fascinating. So if you didn't get on your bike before, get out there and get some exercise every day. Get some sunshine and look after yourself. I'll try, I'll try my best. <laughs> so um, I think that's a really nice place to wrap it up. Brilliant. Good stuff. Thank you very much.